Good morning, everyone. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at eFree. It's so great to be with you all here today. Welcome to everybody here in the auditorium. Welcome to anybody watching online. So glad you could join us today. So we are continuing our series called God's Name, where we've been looking at this moment where God passes by a man named Moses, and he declares who he is. And as he declares who he is, he reveals more about his character, more about his attributes, so we get to know him more and more. And we're going to look this week about God being our slow-to-anger God, our slow-to-anger God, which got me thinking, when was the last time you were angry? So was it this morning on the way to school, on the way to church? that your kids were fighting in the back of the car and you're like, stop it, I will pull this van over. Or perhaps it was before that when you were getting your toddler breakfast and you had the audacity, the bull-faced audacity to give them the purple bowl when they wanted the pink bowl and they threw a fit and you're like, it's a bowl. It holds Cheerios, it holds milk the same, it doesn't matter, just eat it. Or perhaps it was when you loaded everybody up in the car to go to McDonald's and you wanted ice cream. And you got in line at McDonald's and you said, hey, I'd like an ice cream cone. And they told you the ice cream machine is broken because it's always broken. And you're like, what is the deal? Do they have to go to the International Space Station to get parts for this ice cream machine? It's always broken. Or was it the last time that you were driving in the interstate and you were stuck behind someone who was going 55 miles an hour in the left lane? And you're like, what are you doing? This is not the place for you. Find a highway. Like, come on. We want to drive 75 or more. Or was it the last time you watched a basketball game or a sporting event and the referees were calling too many fouls or not enough fouls or not the right fouls and you found yourself going, that's not a foul, that's a foul. And you're just shouting at them or you wanna shout at them or you're just shouting at your TV in your living room. Now I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody. I'm just telling you, this has been my week. So, (laughs) more or less. So as we get started, I want to talk about what is justifiable anger and what's unjustifiable anger. Because there's a difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, or between good anger and bad anger. So good, justifiable, righteous anger is when we see injustice occurring. We see the strong taking advantage of the weak. We, we see someone who should be helping and then they're hurting, and we go, this is wrong. When you see an adult who is harming a child, you go, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and anger drives rises up in you, that, that's justifiable, righteous anger. But if I'm honest with you, most of my anger does not come from a justifiable, righteous place. It comes from some other source. Sometimes it's annoyance. I'm annoyed because my kids are making noise, what it feels like for a decade, and I'm like, stop it! I want some peace, I want some quiet. Or it comes from pride, that I feel like you're making me look bad when you're throwing this tantrum inside Walmart and everyone's looking at me, like I feel like I'm the parent that can't keep it together and I get angry. Or it comes from control. It comes from I want you to do what I want you to do when I want you to do it right now because I want you to do it. Because I'm the parent. And my kids are little and they're learning what it means to obey. They're learning what it means to follow instructions. And instead of giving them grace and mercy, I wanna give them anger because they're not getting it right the first time. And all those are unjustifiable sources of anger. And in this series, what we've been doing is been looking at who God is. Because far too often, we shape God based on our view of who we think he is, or our view on ourselves. And so what we do is we make God in our image. And so God gets angry about the things we get angry about. Or or he gets angry to the amount that we get angry. Or he's just as, as patient or impatient as we are. 
And so what we want to do this morning is we want to uh, try to have our minds reshaped to who does God reveal himself to be in the Bible? So let's pray, and then we'll dig into this. Father God, would you please pass by us? Would you pass by and help us to see more of who you are? God, would you declare, God, you're slow to angerness this morning. God, we, we want to see you for who you are, and we want our minds and our hearts to be reshaped to reflect more and more who you really are. God, we don't want to build an image that is false or fake. God, we want to know you for who you really are. So would you please help us to do that this morning through your word as we read it, as we understand it more. God, I pray that it would shape us. God, we pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Right, before you open your Bibles, I got an important question for you. When is the first time the Bible says that God is angry? It says that his anger burned against someone or said he was angry with somebody. Because if you're like me, I would guess Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they fracture, they break the world. He gives them one rule, one rule. Like you imagine if you give your kids one rule and they break that one, you're like, what are you doing? Just one. But it's not then. It doesn't say that he gets angry with them. So then I would jump to um, Cain and Abel. Like Cain gets jealous of Abel, he murders Abel, and God goes to confront Cain. I would assume that at that moment, God's anger is gonna burn against Cain, but it's not there. So then I would think, well, it's gotta be in the flood. Like the world's destroyed through this flood because of the wickedness of humanity. They've gotten so evil, God's like, I gotta start over. It's gotta say that he's angry there, but it doesn't. You have to go through the entire book of Genesis. You get into Exodus before the Bible tells us that God is angry because he's slow to anger. So in Exodus 4, 14, it says, then the, the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and he'll be glad to see you. So what's going on for context here, God shows up to Moses through a burning bush and he says, Moses, I'm gonna use you as my messenger, my ambassador, to go and tell the Egyptians to let my people go. And five times, Moses gives some variation of, I can't do it, I'm not clever enough, I can't talk well enough, and then in the end, he just says, I just don't wanna do it. Can you please find somebody else? And then God gets angry. And now, let's become Hebrew scholars for a moment. When it says, the Lord's anger burned against Moses, that's how we translate it, but in Hebrew, it's got a, f a phrase that's an idiom. And an idiom is a phrase that on the surface, it doesn't seem like it makes sense to describe what it's trying to say. So for instance, if I was to say to you, it's raining cats and dogs, my guess is the vast majority of you would not run to the window to see if chihuahuas are falling from the sky. You know, when I say it's raining cats and dogs, that it means it's raining a lot. Or if I was to say, I'm sorry, I spilled the beans about the surprise party, you would not get out your shopping list and put, oh, Jordan, beans, got to put those on there. You spilled them. We're going to have beans for the surprise party. You know that what I'm saying is that I ruined the surprise party and no longer is it a surprise party, it's just a party because I told the person. So there's an idiom. And when we translate it, the Lord's anger burned, what it actually says is the Lord's nose burned hot against Moses. The Lord's nose burned hot. Now, it's an idiom. He doesn't have a literal nose, but it means that he was angry with Moses. Now what's interesting is that when we read in Exodus 34 verses five through six, so this is the foundational passage for us in this series and this was a foundational moment in the nation of Israel. When God passes by Moses and declares who he is, it says this, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him 
and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now when it says slow to anger, we translate that in English, but in Hebrew it says God's long nose. It says God has a long nose, which again is another idiom that means God, it takes a long time for him to get angry. If your nose burns hot against someone, that means that you're angry. If you have a long nose, it takes a long time for that nose to burn hot. So God has a long nose or he's slow to anger. Now maybe you're like me and when I read that or when I say that I go, but is he? Like, is he really slow to anger? Because most likely, you think of a moment in the Old Testament where on the face of it, it seems like somebody did one thing wrong and God was like, you're done. And he got really angry and he destroyed someone or some people or a whole people group or something. And you feel like God is angry. And so when it says that he's slow to anger, I just don't know if that's really the case. So let's wrestle with this. Why is it that God is slow to anger? If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Numbers Chapter 14, verse 1. Numbers is towards the front of your Bible. It's the fourth book of your Bible. It goes Genesis, Leviticus, sorry, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If you get to Deuteronomy or Joshua, you're too far to the right, go back to the left. You'll find Numbers 14. So some context here. God rescues his people from Egypt through sending plagues that breaks the Egyptians' will to keep them in slavery. They plunder the Egyptians. The Egyptians give them gold and silver and extra clothing. They send them away because they say, we want you to go, please pray to your God and have him bless us because what has been happening here is terrible. We don't want this to happen anymore. They get to the Red Sea. They get stuck in front of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is coming behind them. They get worried. They're going to get destroyed. God parts the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptian army chases them in. The Red Sea comes back down on top of them, destroys the whole Egyptian army without the, without the Israelites having to raise a sword. They go through the wilderness. God leads them to Mount Sinai where they make a covenant with God. They say to him that you are gonna be our God and we're gonna be your people and we're entering into this agreement, this covenant relationship. Then they immediately break that covenant and God is gracious and doesn't destroy them or... Uh, doesn't destroy them. And then they go through the wilderness and God provides for them miraculously. They get to the promised land. They send 12 spies to check out the promised land to scope it out. Two of the spies come back and says, it's incredible, it's amazing, it's flowing with milk and honey. Another idiom that means it's awesome. You wanna live there, we wanna live there. But 10 of the spies come back and they say, well, yeah, the land is great, but there's gigantic people that live there. They'd all play in the NBA. They have fortified cities. It's terrible. We can't fight these people. They're going to destroy us. And so they share this report with the rest of the Israelites, and the people go into a frenzy. They begin to wail and cry. And so this is where we pick it up in Exodus, sorry, Exodus Numbers 14, verse 1. That night... All the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children would be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So on the face, when we read that, we go, man, they just have a moment of doubt. This is one of those moments of, I believe, help my unbelief. But that is not what's going on here. 
that they were in full-on rebellion. They were in full-on, like, we're abandoning you, God. We don't think you're good. You're evil, and we've got to get away from you. So let's unpack this. So they start by saying, if only we had died in Egypt. What they mean by that is if only, God, you had not sent 10 plagues to miraculously deliver us from the Egyptians again and again and again so that they would break their will to keep us. If only you had not done that. If only you had not plundered the Egyptians by making them favorable towards us so they would give us gold and silver and these possessions so we would be able to survive in the wilderness. If only you had not done that. If only, God, you had not parted the Red Sea so that we could have gone through on dry ground. If only you had not done that. God, if only you had not defeated the Egyptian army without us having to do anything by bringing it back down on them after they had chased us into the Red Sea. There's a lot of if onlys. Then they say, or in the wilderness. Say, if only, God, you had not miraculously provided water for us in the wilderness. So there's two different instances. One, they are thirsty and need of water, and they come to a pool or a pond that it's bitter, it's undrinkable, and God miraculously turns it sweet so they can drink it, provides for them. There's another instance where they're thirsty, they feel like we're gonna die of dehydration, and then God brings water out of a rock to provide for all of these Israelites. And then if only, God, you had not made it rain bread from the sky so that we had food to eat day after day after day after day after day after day after day. Because it's not just like one time he did these things. He continually did, that for, did this for them from before they left Egypt. He has been nothing but faithful and good. And they're saying, if only, God, you just let us die. If only you hadn't been faithful to us. If only you hadn't taken care of us. So they are recounting all of God's faithfulness. And then their conclusion is, we should, not be, we should not be connected to you anymore. Then they say, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Why is it that he brought us to this promised land, this land he promised to give us only to let us die in fighting these people? And in that moment, they're forgetting all the times that God has rescued them in battle, rescued them from the Egyptians. He provides for them. He takes care of them. So they're recounting all of God's faithfulness and saying, God, you're evil which is what they do here when they say, our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. So now they turn it and they say, God, you're actually evil. God, all these things you've been doing for us that look like they're good, they're actually evil because you've been leading us to this place so we'll go in here and we'll get slaughtered by these people and then these people are gonna take our wives and our kids as plunder. And God, we know that you said these people are evil and wicked and they do things like child sacrifice and so you are bringing us here to push them out as an act of judgment, but God, we don't actually trust you. We think all the good things you did to us were evil acts to get us here to this moment, to this place so that you can slaughter us. And so they're throwing accusation after accusation after accusation at God who has done nothing but been faithful to them. So then they say, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt wouldn't it be better if we just turned around and went back to slavery? That would be better than this. And then they say, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They say, we should divorce God. We should get rid of him. We should get rid of his men who he put in charge of leading us. We should choose a new leader that will take us back to Egypt, take us back to slavery. This is what they're doing. So this leads us to our first reason why I think we struggle to believe that God is slow to anger. And that's that we downplay our sin. Whether it's our own sin or whether it's the sin of the people we read about in the Bible, that we downplay it and we just go, well, they just have this moment of doubt. And so then when God responds 
it feels like God is way overreacting to their small moment of doubt. And the reality is they have had years and years of being unfaithful and being untrusting and saying that God is evil and that he's not gonna provide for them. Every time they face adversity, they say, God, why did you bring us here to die? God, why did you just let us die in Egypt? Were there not enough graves there that you brought us to the Red Sea to kill us? Then God provides for them. And then they get thirsty and they say, God, was there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die in the desert? And again and again, they accuse him of this. So this is like when your kid says, hey, I was just borrowing the car. And you say, well, you're 12. Like, they just downplay it. They go, it's not that big of a deal. Why are you overreacting to this, mom? Why are you overreacting to this, dad? Going, do you understand what you're doing? And so this is what we do to God. We shrink our sin and we act like it's no big deal. And so when God responds in an appropriate way, we feel like it's this big overreaction. And so when God is slow to anger, we don't realize that he's slow to anger because we overlook all the times we've been sinful for years, maybe decades, and now he's frustrated or he's angry with us. And we're going, why are you angry all of a sudden? We downplay our sin. So to try and move us along, I'm gonna give you some, some, some synopsises of some of these verses. So um, in the next section here, what happens is Moses and Aaron, they immediately fall down on the ground. They begin praying and interceding, saying, God, please don't destroy these people. Please be gracious to them. Like, they, I know that they're sinful. I know that what they do deserves just judgment, but please don't do that. Please be gracious to them. And then there's two other guys named uh, Joshua and Caleb, and they're the two spies that went into the promised land, and they came out and said, it's awesome. We should go take it. And they begin trying to plead with the crowd, pleading with the Israelites and saying, hey, we need to repent, say we're sorry to God, and go take it. Like, God is gonna give it to us. He's gonna provide for us. Look at all the times he's been faithful. And so this is what they're doing. And as they're doing this, we read in verse 10 that this is the assembly's response. This is the rest of the Israelites' response. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. So these people are pleading on their behalf, trying to convince them to do what is right. And the assembly, the group of Israelites, their response is, we should just kill these guys. Why don't we just throw rocks at them until they're dead? That's what we should do. And it's not until then that God intervenes. And then it says, then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have performed among them, I will strike them down with the plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Now it's possible he's just talking to Moses when he says, I'm gonna make you into this mighty nation. But I think he's probably talking to all four of them that are being righteous in this moment. He's talking to Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron. He's saying to them, hey, I'm gonna start over with you guys. What they're doing, it's too great. The evil is too great. I'm gonna intervene. I'm gonna cast judgment on them. I'm gonna start over with you guys. And I think that oftentimes in the Old Testament, we read something like this, where he says, I'm gonna strike them down with a plague. And we go, that is a strong response to what they're doing. And I think that what happens as we begin to project our own anger onto God, this is the second reason why we struggle to believe that God is slow to anger. We, we project our own anger. What I mean is the reasons we get angry. We get angry about we're annoyed with this person or we're annoyed this person's driving slow in the fast lane or, or we're annoyed that someone's tapping on a desk or we want control or we're annoyed, we are angry these people make us look bad 
And so we, we take those reasons and we project it onto God, and then when God has a strong response like this, we go, man, he's annoyed with these Israelites, he's gonna wipe them out with a plague? But that's not what's going on. Like, remember, they're prepared to murder the only four righteous people in the group. The only four people who are sticking with God, the only four who are ready to say, let's go get the promised land, let's do what he's asking us to do, they're ready to murder those guys. And that's when God steps in and he says, enough is enough, I'm gonna pass judgment on this. I'm not gonna allow this to continue to go on, I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna do something about this. And so we have to be careful to not project our own reasons for anger onto God because if we do that, we're gonna shrink him down to be like us, and that is not who he is. So then what happens is, Moses goes and stands between the people and God. He stands between them, and he says, hey God, before you pass judgment on them, before you destroy them, can I please remind you of a couple of things, or not remind you, but can I please plead a case, plead their case? And he first starts by saying the Egyptians. He says, the Egyptians, if they hear that you destroyed these people, what they're gonna assume is that you were too weak to give them the promised land. That you made a promise to them and you couldn't keep it, so you just wiped them out. So please, don't, don't do this because of that sake. But then he goes on to a greater reason. In Numbers 14, verse 17, he says, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. Now, when he says declared, he's saying, remember that moment when you passed by says, so you told me who you were, and so I want to tell you, I want to ask you to, to relate to them according to that, that character. Verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So this is what Moses does. He stands between the people and he stands between God and he says, God, would you please relate to them according to your steadfast love, according to you being slow to anger, according to your grace and your mercy, your desire to forgive sin and rebellion. He says, I know that you are a just God. I know that you would be right right now to pass judgment against these Israelites for their wicked, evil acts, but would you please show them grace and mercy according to your steadfast love and your desire to forgive instead of judgment right now? He says, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. What he's saying is, since the day they left Egypt, you've had to forgive them every day or you could have passed judgment on them and destroyed them but you chose not to. You were patient with them. You were slow to anger with them, and I know they are deserving of what you would give them right now, but would you instead not give them what they deserve? Would you instead relate to them according to your kindness and your grace and your mercy? Because I know that's who you are. And then in verse 20, it says, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. He says, I've forgiven them. I I will relate to them with that part of my character. I will show them the grace and mercy that you're asking for. Then he goes on from there, and we're not gonna read all the verses, but he says, there's gonna be consequences, though. He says, I'm gonna make all of you guys go into the desert. You're gonna wander in the wilderness until this generation, everybody who's 20 years and older, has passed away except for Caleb and Joshua because they were faithful. Everybody else, you're gonna wander, and I'm gonna take care of you the rest of your lives. 
But because you chose to rebel, the consequence is you're gonna be out in the wilderness and I'm gonna take care of you out there, but you're not gonna get to enjoy the promised land. And when the last person passes away, then I'm gonna take your kids, the kids that you claimed were gonna be plundered for these people, and I'm gonna use them to go take the promised land. So real quickly, I didn't say this last service, but I wanted to. So um, here's what's amazing to me. When, when God says, it says here, yet he does not, this is back in verse 18, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So don't miss what happens here. So they get included with the parents and the, and the fact that they have to go into the wilderness. They get taken into the wilderness because they're kids. They can't go into the promised land on their own. And so their parents' sin affects them. But when it comes to saying who is accountable for that sin, it's only the parents who are held accountable. The parents are the ones that, have to, that stay in the wilderness until they pass away, and then their kids, who is saying, I'm not gonna hold you accountable for your parents' sin, they get to go and take the promised land. And so I know those verses make us uncomfortable, but I think there's a piece of it that just says there is a reality that as parents, when we, when we rebel, when we sin, it affects our kids. But then there is this other reality that God will not hold them accountable for what we do, but what we do is going to affect them. Okay, sidebar done. All right, third reason. Third reason that we miss God being slow to anger is that we miss that God's anger is always a reaction to human evil and wickedness. God's anger, it is only towards human evil and wickedness. It's never that he's annoyed with someone. It's never that he wants to look good and people are making him look bad. It's never that he wants control and he doesn't have control, he's losing control. It's never those reasons. It is always that he sees evil and he's saying, I can no longer wait any longer to pass judgment against this evil. And so I'm stepping in and I'm doing something about this. And he's angry about it. He's angry about the injustice that occurs. He's angry about the evil that he sees. And the reality is we want God to be this way. My guess is most, if not all of us in this room have seen something on the news or seen something in someone's life and we've said, how long, God, are you gonna allow this evil thing to continue before you step in? And the reality is if God was not slow to anger, you would never, ever have to pray that prayer. If God was not slow to anger, then he would step in instantly every single time and there'd be judgment and justice and none of us would be in this room. Because I can almost guarantee you that someone in my life at some point has thought, God, how long are you gonna let Jordan continue to do this evil thing? And if it was not for God's graciousness and his kindness and his mercy that led me to repentance and gave me the opportunity and time to repent, that I was able to turn away from that evil deed or those evil deeds and experience God's grace and mercy. And so God's anger, it is always a reaction to human evil and wickedness. It is never that he's annoyed. It's never that he is afraid of how he looks or he's losing control. It's never those things. It's that he sees evil and he says, I will not let this go on anymore. This is wrong. So real quickly, as we wrap up here, I wanna talk about Jonah. I love Jonah. So Jonah's in the Old Testament. And that's really important because oftentimes what we do is we form this idea that God in the Old Testament is angry and fiery and judgmental and wants to just destroy people with fire and lightning. But then God in the New Testament, he's relaxed and he's loving and kind and gracious and he's just easygoing. And that dichotomy, that's not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is the same always. And what I love about Jonah is that God tells Jonah to go to a city that is wicked, 
that there is evil that exists in that city. And he says, I want you to preach against this city because I, I want them to repent. And Jonah runs away. Jonah, who lives in the Old Testament, who if the view of God that we have of him in the Old Testament is true and accurate, that I think Jonah would have run towards Nineveh because he would have said, okay, let's go get these guys. But instead, Jonah runs away. He tries to go in the opposite direction and through a series of events, God takes him to Nineveh and then Jonah gives what I think is the shortest and most unheartfelt sermon of all time. And he goes into the city and he says, in 40 days, God's gonna destroy the city. I'm out. And then he leaves. And the people in the city, they respond. They, they, so they put on sackcloth and ashes, which is an ancient way of grieving and saying, we're, we repent, we're remorseful. And the whole city repents and turns back towards God. And Jonah gets angry about it. Jonah is mad because he wanted these people to get it. And they're getting grace and mercy instead. In Jonah 4, verse 2, it says, he being Jonah, prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Like, he's using these things like these are accusations against God. It's like, God, you were too gracious, you were too kind, you should have got these people. And I knew that if I came here and I did what you asked, you were gonna forgive them because that's who you are. You are not a God who wants to destroy people. You are not a God who wants to pass judgment to people. You want to show them gracious, your grace and your kindness and your mercy and your steadfast love. That's what you want to do. You want to forgive them. And that's why you sent me here. And I didn't want to forgive them. I wanted them to get destroyed because they're our enemies. It's because you, God, God, you're so gracious and kind. I don't like that. Now, if Jonah... If he thought God was the way we think about it, God in the Old Testament, he would have ran there and go, all right, let's go get these guys. I'll preach against them and then you have good reason to go get them. But he goes, I don't wanna go there because you are gonna forgive them. They're gonna repent and you're gonna say, okay. So throughout uh, working on this message, my view of God in the Old Testament has been continually reshaped. And there's been a number of times where I've had to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry that I downplay my sin. I'm sorry that I downplay the sin of the Israelites because I, I identify with them, if I'm honest with you. Like, I see the things they do and I go, I do that sometimes. And I don't want to think that it makes you angry. But the reality is, it's good and right that you get angry. And so, God, would you help me to be faithful? Would you help me to not accuse you of evil because you've never done evil ever in all of your existence? that I have to repent and say, God, would you please forgive me for projecting my own anger, my own reasons for being angry onto you and acting like you're petty like me or you're impatient like me or you're easily annoyed like me or you're worried about how you look like me. And God, would you forgive me for missing the fact that you're Anger is always a reaction to human evil and wickedness. That's always what it's about. It's always you seeing evil and saying, no more of this. Like, I will not stand by this any longer. I've waited and I've waited in hopes that you would turn away and trust and faith and hopes that you would turn to me in repentance because I desire to give you forgiveness. I desire to give you love and mercy, but you will not do that, and so I cannot wait any longer. 
And so I have to say, God, would you please help to reshape my view because my view of you is far too small when it comes to this area of being slow to anger. Would you pray with me? Father God, would you please help us? Would you help us to see that you are slow to anger, God, that we see that in the New Testament and we confess that we see that easily in the New Testament, but God, oftentimes in the old, we focus on these moments where we don't understand what's going on and we downplay the Israelite sin as we downplay our own and then we project onto you the reasons we get angry and God, would you please help us to see who you really are? Because the reality is you are a God who's slow to anger that if you were not, you would have never sent Jesus for us. You would have never sent him to take our place. You would have never sent him to make a way for us to receive forgiveness and mercy. That you had all of the right and all of the ability to pass judgment against us. But instead, you put forward your hand of peace and mercy and kindness and graciousness and called us again and again through Jesus and through people around us towards this. So God, would you help us to see that you are a God who's slow to anger? Would you help that to form who we are and who you are? God, because we want to see you you for who you truly are. God, thank you that you have passed by us here this morning. God, I pray that it would shape in our mind who you are more and more to look more like you really are. God, we love you. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen.